I think another thing is a lot of people, because there's no education, tend to think of themselves as primarily a human brain. And that's, that, there's that model of brain as computer. So it strikes me that I've worked with ever so many people whose sense of, of their bodies is such that it's almost as if their body is just to keep their brain off the ground. There's so little connection there. And I think shame is uh, an exceptionally debilitating problem in this culture. People are so uneasy about, about their human body, which is such a gift. I'd like to start today with a story, and it's a story that I've taken from uh, Wendy Doniger in a book that an edited volume that Sarah Coakley put together. It's called Religion and the Body, and uh, I'm teaching a class soon, and this is the book I'm using, and it's been really helpful in giving an overview on the what I what I'm beginning to get into in today's conversation. I say beginning to get into because it's an interest of mine that I want to explore, you know, further down the line. It's it's the conversation about the body, and um, and so Sarah Coakley's put this wonderful book together that's a mixture of all kinds of different traditions and their various orientations to the body. So Wendy Doniger is citing from, and I'm going to mess this word up, but. Uh, Karakasmita, it's a Hindu text, an ancient Hindu text, and it's talking about how even in the Hindu tradition there are multiple understandings of the body. Once a group of sages were summoned by the king to debate this question, the person is a mass of soul, senses, mind, and sense objects, but is the origin of the person also thought to be the origin of diseases or not? The sages offered various answers. One said, the individual person is born from the soul, and so the diseases are also born from the soul. Another, no. When the mind that is conscious of lucidity is overwhelmed by energy and torpor, then it causes the origin both of the body itself and of the pathological changes in the body. Another, no. All creatures are born from rasa, the fluid essence of digested food, and so the various diseases are also born from rasa. Another, no. The individual person is born of the six elements of matter, earth, water, fire, wind, space, mind, or soul. And so diseases are all born from these six elements. Then another sage replied, no. How could someone be born out of six elements without a mother and a father? A person is born from a person, a cow from a cow, and a horse from a horse. Diseases such as urinary disorders are known to be hereditary. So the two parents are the cause. No, said another, for a blind person is not born from a blind person. But a creature is known to be born of his karma, and so diseases are also born from karma. 
No, said another. An agent must always precede an action, karma. And no person can be the result of an action that has not been done. This is clear enough. No, nature is the cause, one's own nature, the cause of both diseases and the person. Just as it is the nature of earth to be rough, water to be fluid, wind to move, and fire to be hot. No, said another, the Creator had an unlimited imagination, and it was He who created the happiness and unhappiness of this universe, sentiment and insentiment. No, said the other, the individual person is born of time, and diseases are born of time. Now, as the sages were arguing this way, Punasvara said, don't talk like this. It is hard to get to the truth when people take sides. People who utter arguments and counter-arguments as if they were established facts never get to the end of their own side, as if they were going round and round on an oil press. Not until you take off the torpor of factionalism from what you want to know will true knowledge emerge. The use of good food is one cause of the growth of a person, and the use of bad food is the cause of disease. To which one of the sages replied, Physicians have an abundance of different opinions. Not all of them will understand this sort of teaching. This is taken from O'Flattery's work in 1988. So therein lies one of the core issues that I'm, I'm really interested in looking at, which is, um, what is the body? And I, I notice in my own practice, um, I, I get a sense of the differences the different orientations that very various people take to their body. And one way that I get at this is that I'll say, you know, what are you feeling right now to somebody? And they'll, you know, say whatever it is they say, but inevitably what happens is I'll say, you know, where, where is that feeling? What, how do you know you're having that feeling? And what they'll do is locate that feeling somewhere in the body. And the way in which somebody orients themselves to that tells a lot. Um, it tells a lot about the way they orient themselves to to life, to the way their life, uh, um, to their life experience. So anxiety, for example, or shame, you heard Michael, um, the quote at the beginning, say, say shame is um, such an issue in our culture. Th- there's always a correlate in, uh, even saying that correlate, there, it, it, that doesn't quite get to it. Sure, there's a correlate, but they are interwoven and inseparable. The feeling itself is in the body, and what we tend to want to do is get out of it. So anxiety is not the feelings that one feels, whether whether it's sense perception or um, some kind of mental formation. The feeling that one feels, we seek to escape it. We don't want to be in anxiety. We don't want to feel that. And so we try to get rid of it, and we treat a lot of the symptoms, and rather than look at what that might be signaling, what might be going on. And so our relationship to our bodies, um, at, at, at best, is, is pretty unconscious. And um, we, we just have a very <laughs> mixed history with how we approach the body. So I wanted to go to somebody that knows what they're talking about when it comes to the body. So today's participant is Michael McIver. He's a he's a rolfer in Houston and a friend, and he's worked with the body for oh for about forty four years. Um, I want to give you a little bit of a background on him. 
Um, Michael went to Hotchkiss, um, went to Yale University, and was on staff at Eslin in California as uh, the therapeutic staff, massage therapeutic staff. And he was trained by Ida Rolf. And that may be a foreign name, it may not, but um, you'll get a lot of understanding of who Ida Rolf is or was. Um, Michael's been very involved with the Rolf Institute. He's been on the board of directors. Um, he's been a chairman at the Red River region of Rolf Institute. And um, and has, has been just deeply interwoven with that uh, this theory that, um, that Ida Rolf discovered or... Um, brought to consciousness and she she developed rolfing about 50 years ago um, it, it looks at the structural integration of the web-like connective tissues or the fascia in in the body and because he he literally has his hands on people most days all day every day um i i thought well he's really got some insight into our uh, our relationship to the body so again, I, I wanted to go to him just to be able to pick his brain and, and see what uh, comes out. And I think it was a, a success. Um, it, it's, it's definitely opened my mind a bit. Um, my, my whole philosophy here is that um, I want to go to people who know a lot about something that I don't know much about and uh, just share an interesting conversation. So, uh, Michael, uh, you can reach him at Rolfing Houston, Texas. That's R-O-L-F-I-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N-T-X dot com. And um, the the music that you'll you'll you you heard uh, is a song called um, "Over Here" um, by Colin Herring and his band. It's from the record "Past Life Crashing." I'm going to finish out the, the, the episode with a song from Colin Herring. Um, the song is Drinking Again. It's from Avoiding the Circus. It's been a, an album that I've known well for many, many years. It came out in the early 2000s. and I've known Colin for years. And um, again, as I'll keep saying on these shows, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be able to go through the catalog of music. and kind of It's almost like a, a trip through memories because I'm using all these people that I've been um, connected with in my history. So it's, uh, you can get Colin at, uh, where did I write that down? Um, I think it's colinherring.com. Let me make sure about that. I've got it up on my, yeah, colinherring.com, C-O-L-L-I-N-H-E-R-R-I-N-G.com. And the theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. You can get them at Modern Nations Music. Dot com. I highly recommend that. Um, I do want to finish with uh, a quote from Sarah Coakley. Um, she's, she's referencing something Mary Douglas said in 1966. Um, the quote from Mary Douglas is, Just as it is true that everything symbolizes the body, so it is equally true that the body symbolizes everything else. End quote. And this is where Sarah picks up. But why then are bodies simultaneously so ubiquitous and yet so hard to get our hands around? And I'm, I'm grateful to uh, Wendy Doniger for bringing that passage out, but I'm, I'm grateful to Sarah Coakley for putting this good, uh, this wonderful book together, Religion in the Body. If you like the podcast, share it. That's, that's one of the best ways you can support it. Uh, think of a couple of people and just send it away. 
Uh, it's available on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram at The Sacred Speaks. And the website for the podcast is thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, and I'm grateful for you listening. Thank you. It's, um, it's really fun to do this. So I'll leave it there. Years and years ago, I got back from Europe, and my friend Dr. Leland Johnson said a meditation master is in town, and his name was Muktananda, and he was connected with Siddha Yoga. And I ended up reading his autobiography, and there was a point in his evolution as a master where he was having a lot of problems with visions of beautiful naked women, and he was having erections, and this is a difficult thing for a meditation master to deal with. <laughs> and one of his teachers came into the area where he lived and sat down with Baba Muktananda. This man's name was Hari Giri Baba. And he said, you're having problems with your body. Muktananda, it is simply a skin bag full of shit and piss and mucus and phlegm, blood. You don't want to hold on to that, do you? <laughs> So, right, and therein lies the issue, right? Right. D deny the body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that, let, me, let me read through this, and we're just kind of jumping into it, right? Sure. Good. This quote, I, I read, I've, I've been reading this book, Religion and the Body, that's edited by Sarah Coakley, and one of the chapters is by Callistus Ware, and it begins, He is my helper and my enemy, my assistant and my opponent, a protector and a traitor, so John Climacus, 7th century abbot of Sinai, sums up his attitude towards his own body. He and his body seem to have a love-hate relationship with each other. Quote, How can I hate him when my nature disposes me to love him? How can I break away from him when I am bound to him forever? How can I escape from him when he is going to rise with me? I embrace him, and I turn away from him. What is this mystery in me? And there we begin. And there we begin. So your quote you, you gave to us about renouncing the body. Uh, the reason why I wanted to chat with you is, has been through our ongoing conversations, is really your, un, not only your pro professional work in working daily with the body, right? And we'll get into what, what it is you do and right. how you do it and all those things. So you, you are spending every day working with the body touching and, people yeah yeah quite an honor <laughs> yeah yeah a vulnerable place very uh, very much people a lot of people walk in here and immediately begin to tell me what's wrong with their bodies and it makes me sad because everyone is beautiful everyone's body has amazing potential and the exciting thing is that whatever people walk in here uh, demonstrating in their bodies, change can occur. And that's because of the work of Dr. Ida Pauline Rolfe, Ph.D., that we know this. And there are perhaps 2,000 people who do this who are Rolfers. Um, I've been a member of the Rolfe Institute since before it was called the Rolfe Institute. This is my 45th year in practice. She created through her 
biochemical research, a totally different way of, of observing and understanding the human body. And then she couldn't get anyone to pay attention, largely because she was always the only woman in the room. Hmm. And she spent decades presenting, demonstrating, and lecturing about what she called structural integration. But it was always to rooms full of physical therapists, orthopedic surgeons, osteopaths, chiropractors, almost entirely male. She was virtually <laughs> right. always the only girl in the room. Isn't the domain of the body and, and nature the, the feminine? <laughs> why, why have men been thinking they've, they've got dominion over this for so long? Oh, absolutely. And, it, you know, it comes from those early words in Genesis. Yeah, yeah. I want to get, uh, yeah. Let, maybe we should, what do you, what do you think about how, how we frame this in? How would you feel most comfortable framing in this work? Where does your intuition tell us we need to go? You know, I think that pursuing a little bit about who Dr. Rolf was might be a, a pretty good way to start this. Great, yeah, because technically you, you know, on your business card, you're, you're a Rolfer. You That's right. Rolfing. Um, so yeah, let's, let's go there, and then we'll, uh, we'll follow the rabbit trail. Yeah, well, to start with, she didn't invent the word Rolfing, nor did she like it very much. <laughs> she thought the phrase structural integration, and the word integrate means to bring a system to a higher level of order and balance. You know, that could be a business hierarchy, it could be the human body. And structure is what she, that's the word she used to refer to the human body. So structural integration is intended to bring the human body to a higher level of balance. So the very first question is, well, why is that even necessary? And the answer is that when we're born, and this goes back as long as there have been human beings. We are born not perfectly shaped, but randomly organized. And that's Dr. Rolf's term. She liked the word, the random body. What is a random body? It's, it's a disorganized body. The opposite would be a balanced, a well-organized body. And the criteria for that are really easy. They're, they're something you can visualize. A balanced body would have symmetry, so the shoulders would be reasonably even, hips would be reasonably even. From the side, a balanced body, most importantly of all, would be balanced in a way that the field of gravity was not a detriment to it. Hmm. And that needs some explanation. It sure does. The, the Rolf logo is a, a pair of images uh, a poorly stacked pile of blocks with a slumping human child, and then a symmetrically stacked pile of blocks with a beautifully erect human child's silhouette. And what that implies is bringing order out of chaos. So what she discovered was it was possible to manipulate anyone's body and move the different elements bones and muscles and organs and veins and arteries and nerves into a better organized, whole and balanced alignment. About gravity, because that's, that's really the key to Dr. Rolf's work. And I would give a lot, I'd give a lot to, to know when it occurred to her that she wasn't fixing problems. She wasn't just soothing someone's problem back or problem shoulder that the most complete thing she could do was to recognize that the context for being a human being is the field of gravity. That gravity 
is a very detrimental field to an imbalanced structure. Something that's random tends to randomize further over time. And there's a thermodynamic law that systems lose heat or energy over time. What she discerned, and I'd give a lot to know when this happened, is that if you're better balanced, more symmetrical, and especially better vertically balanced, the field of gravity can become a supportive, sustaining, and reinforcing field to a human body instead of a distortive, destructive field. And I say this every day as I present a short introduction to new clients. I think that puts her up there with Newton and Galileo for astonishing original thought. I don't know anyone other than Rolf who understood that gravity is the primary destructive force to humans. It makes old people all bent over, stiff and immobile. But it can be a reinforcing and supportive field and can sustain a human body. I think that's astonishing. And it took me years to really grasp that. And then when I work, if I'm working well, I use the field of gravity as a major asset in what I do. And, you know, who's even discussed gravity other than maybe in physics? So it's, it still fascinates me that she came through, invented this from her biochemistry, that is Rolfing, and then carried it through to the point where she not only trained a lot of people, but trained a small group to be the faculty so that the Rolf Institute continues her work. Uh, I've forgotten how many years ago she died, 1979. Put some context to this. Let's, let's kind of put us into time and space. Because yeah. you say you've been doing this 45 years. I met Dr. Rolf in 1971. This is who Dr. Ida Rolf was. She was born in 1896, graduated from Barnard College up in New York, and that's the sister school to Columbia University. So she went on to Columbia, and she went to the School of Physicians and Surgeons, where she pursued a doctorate in biochemistry that was awarded to her in 1920, which I think is really impressive. Then she did postdoctoral research at a place in New York called the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. And while she was studying, she decided to focus on a protein that's a major component of all mammals, and it's called collagen. Most people relate to that word in some regard to the makeup industry. Mm -hmm. But our connective tissues, our cartilage between the bones, the tendons that attach muscle to bone, and the fascia, the membranes that enfold every single structure in the human body, are made of collagen. And she discovered a remarkable uh, behavior of this material. It behaves in a plastic manner. Now what that means is it can be molded, shaped, sculpted, changed. This lets us have a totally different way of looking at the human body. Most people who walk into my practice assume their bones are the major structural component. And it's because there are so many charts in chiropractic and medical offices of a skeleton standing, and it's often a front, a side, and a rear view. But skeletons can't stand up, and bones actually don't move. They can't. They're totally inert and passive. It's the combined agency of muscle and connective tissue that enfolds the skeleton, supports it, moves it, and 
actually is responsible for the position of where the bones are within the body. So the skeleton is very important, but we are not built around a frame the way a building is, simply because buildings don't dance, do they? <laughs> right. So it, it, the, where my thoughts are at that point yeah. is in this like, okay, so... I'm just curious, what do people come in with, right? Let's make this relatable and then sure. get into the, like the, the deep dive, you know, because yeah. people have all these struggles, aches and pains, right? All the kind of crap that goes on in life that accumulates and most people tend to deny or try to avoid. And then they come into your office, right? I mean, you're seeing people all the time, right? you know, Here's who comes to me. Here's who comes to anyone who's a rolfer. I usually say there are three major groups and a subgroup. The biggest uh, contingent of folk who come to me for rolfing have a problem, a chronic problem, not an acute problem. This isn't, I just got whiplashed, but rather I've, I was whiplashed two years ago and I've gone to physical therapy and chiropractic and nothing's worked. Do you think rolfing can help me? So that's group one. Group two are fabulously healthy people who exercise ferociously, eat carefully. They often have dealt with any addictive tendencies. Their pursuit is of the highest possible level of well-being. And they understand that rolfing can enhance flexibility and self-awareness. So that's group two. Group three, psychotherapeutic referrals. A lot mm -hmm. of I've rolfed probably more psychotherapists in this city than any other group except probably the oil industry. But I've roughed a lot of psychologists, MFTs, LPCs, somewhere around 14 or 15 psychiatrists too. So the people in the psychotherapeutic world have known about Rolfing all the way back to the 60s because of Dr. Ida Rolf and Frederick Pearls, Fritz Pearls, the gentleman mm -hmm. who, with his wife, developed Gestalt therapy. He was an early champion of Dr. Rolf's because after a heart surgery, he was having trouble breathing. She Rolfed him, and his color came up, his energy returned, and he became a great fan. And that is one of the reasons she ended up at the Esalen Institute out in Big Sur. And that's where I encountered her. Let, let's go back to put a, put who a pin, comes. We'll put a pin right there for a second because yeah. I I'm thinking about the it's, it's still I, I want to get underneath this thing where people the orientation one takes to their body is one of um it's almost an inconvenience to have these kind of aches and pains. Yeah, yeah. The consequences of living, of gravity, of a car wreck, of... Right, and uh, diseases, some diseases as well. What I'm, what I'm really interested in yeah. is giving some context to how to broaden that relationship, how to, how to contextualize the relationship one has with one's body in a way that provides a deeper sense of understanding that there's a there's your inter there, there's no separation we want to make the leap from body to spirit mind yeah and all that under the the same yeah. heading you know i i'm what i think it tends to be so problematic is that it's like okay i got this bumper bruise or i've got this pain or i've got this mm -hmm. whatever and our interpretation of those things is i want to get rid of it exactly not 
there's not a there's nothing deeper there, right? They just we just want to like get rid of our pain. And we've been kind of wired up to assume that all we need to do is squelch the symptom and things are fine. Right. So if we get a sniffle, we go to the doctor, he gives us an antibiotic, which is a huge, powerful medication, and it, we immediately feel better and we can go back to work. That's not being well. That's simply having masked the problem. Uh-huh. And the same thing's true with bodily problems. Uh, nobody, no one fails to have an occasional twist, sprain, bruise, and so forth. But in general, we're not really introduced to our bodies in this culture. The thing that has always puzzled me is it, it seems it would be a natural thing for every, every child to learn human anatomy so that our bodies are not the mystery that they have become. And because bodies are a mystery to most people in this culture, if anything goes wrong, people immediately rush to a specialist, and that could be a, a doctor most often. Uh, people have no idea what's going on under our skins. And it's, it fascinates me that the woman who invented this got so deeply involved in an area of human, the human body that has been virtually ignored, even though it's an enormous component of the body. Rep- the collagen tissue represents pretty close to 30% of the protein a human being or a dog or a cat or a horse is composed of. And I've asked every doctor, nurse, chiropractor, dentist, any professional who's done a cadaver lab as part of their professional training, how much time they spent studying the connective tissues, which is what rolfing is all about. And the answer in 2018 remains, we didn't. We didn't really study the connective tissues, which I think is just an enormous oversight. For some reason, Dr. Rolf got intrigued by this material collagen and discovered that the material that wraps everything is what really organizes the body. So she called the fascia the organ of form. Initially, I think she just tried to do what she had seen doctors, chiropractors, and physical therapists do. If someone came in complaining of a problem shoulder or a lower back, she'd just work in that area. And she saw over and over that this soothed the symptom, but it often didn't produce a lasting result. And at some point she realized what was the most thorough and effective thing to do was to notice that the body is a totally interconnected system and to work to improve the three-dimensional alignment of the entire body rather than focusing on the symptom. When you look out into the world, what do you think are the consequences of us not being more oriented to our bodies in this way or being more mindful? I, you know, I, I, sure. I see it everywhere I look because I see people whose bodies don't fit very well. The, especially in the era of the computer, more and more people are visibly hunched forward, head and neck protruding, rounded shoulders, compressed and collapsed upper chest. Uh, we were talking a little while ago about who comes to rolfing, mm-hmm. and the third group is people who are seeking some psychotherapeutic uh, connection. Their therapist has recommended that body work would be a good synthesis, that it would help them get deeper into their held feelings. 
I don't think Dr. Rolf had any idea when she started that she'd be working on someone's body and someone would have an emotional response. But it began to happen over and over. It's probably the reason she ended up at Esalen. So I, I tend to, I notice that in my office, if I keep bumping up against, if, if we in our work and our conversations keep yeah. bumping up against the same kind of stuff, trauma, I mean, not body, not, people aren't complaining about an ache or a pain, right? We're a trauma or the same kind of habituated pattern of thought. That those kind of grooves in the road that somebody can't get out of, that oftentimes I'll say, hey, you know, let's, number one, you know, of course do yoga or something to kind of release, but sure, uh, I certainly refer out to somebody like yourself who can do some body work. So why does that work? Why, why is that? A, why do we do that? <laughs> it works this way. I didn't, I didn't understand this. And then in my fifth Rolfing session, this is back in 1971, which is the summer uh, during which I met Dr. Rolf, she was, uh, you know, I'd been an athlete, gone to an all-male college, all-male boarding school, was a Boy Scout. So my, my hard and fast rule was men don't cry. It's unmanly. And Dr. Rolf was working around the, the crest of my rib cage, and I was suddenly dissolved into sobs. And I had no idea why I was crying and couldn't understand what I was feeling. Her hands, she was sitting there watching, and I said, it doesn't, it didn't hurt. Why am I crying? And one of the Rolfing students said, Michael, this is a beautiful emotional release for you. Just let yourself cry. So with that permission, I couldn't have stopped anyway. I ended up learning that a lot of the feelings that I had were those of being a little boy. These were tears I had not allowed myself to cry and had recorded. I think our, my experience is the human body is an exquisitely sensitive emotional recording device. If we, as we go through our lives, simply let ourselves cry when we feel like crying, speak angry words when we're pissed off, uh, laugh when things are funny, things would go swimmingly. But so often we block our feelings. And that's where our bodies become, the term that Reich used was armored. Every time we withhold a feeling, we record it in muscle and connective tissue the same way that uh, a CD can record sound or film, we used to use film, <laughs> records images. I think that must have been a surprise to Dr. Rolf. I doubt very much she expected that that kind of, of um, outcome would occur. But it's, it's part and parcel of, of what we do. And there's an incredible connection between our human body, our human mind, and something that I think many people don't know is Dr. Rolf wasn't just a, a top scientist. She was a seeker as well. And I heard her say many times, of course there's the possibility that there is the astral body, the causal body, the emotional body, higher vibratory bodies, chakras, a, a soul, a spirit. Her belief was there was that those conjectures were very probably connected to the physical body, but the physical body is what we can get our hands on. And she felt that our flesh and blood human body was every bit as holy and sacred as the highest vibration that we consider when we think of a human being, the soul. She thought it was right there lying on her table. 
Well, that gets into all that crazy shit you guys were doing at Esalen back in the 60s or 70s, whenever you were out there. What, Absolutely. Uh, what, <laughs> that, that's a significant place. So you, you've referenced a couple of times where she went out to Esalen. Yeah, she, she got uh, very little recognition, uh, very little traction in the East Coast. And uh, as I mentioned, Fritz Perls, Dick Price, one of the founders of Esalen, th these guys had been rolfed, and they felt her work was very valuable. So she was invited to begin training people out there, late 60s, probably 67, 68. And so most of the early rolfing trainings happened at the Esalen Institute. And uh, that's where I ran into her in 1971. Well, I'm going to out you for a second because you told me a story a week or two ago. So if she's out there in 67, 68, <laughs> you told me around 68 you were in New York City. Right. And you, this is just a aside because this has nothing to do with the body. But <laughs> I just, I really like this. You said that you were uh, at the factory, Andy Warhol's factory, listening to the Velvet Lou Reed, yeah. <laughs> it's 68? Yeah. East Side, huh? It was uh, St. Mark's Place, <laughs> Wow. which is, um, I've forgotten which avenues that's between. I think it might be between first and second. So many early head shops were there, t-shirt shops. <laughs> and this, th this place that uh, when Andy Warhol was in charge of it, it was called the Balloon Farm. And um, yeah, it, it was a, it was an interesting time because I was um, such a product of an East Coast conservative upbringing, and I went to an all boys boarding school and all male college, and once I got to New York, I started to learn what was really out there, and I was taken under the wing of a wonderful woman named Antonia Lamb, and that's where I first started to learn a bit about the whole idea of consciousness about the fact that what I ate mattered a lot in terms of my health and well-being. Tony was an amazing teacher, and she was kind of the earth mother of a group of street hippies down on East 5th Street in the East Village in New York. What I learned from those people and from Tony really spoiled me for a standard career. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> weren't, you, weren't you in, uh, weren't you doing a... a, a a regular job, you know, in New York? I got out of college and found out that because my dad had died in World War II, if I applied for a deferment, I would be reclassified as a uh, son of a man who gave his life and was scot-free of the service. I had no idea this possibility existed until the end of my college career. So I did struggle, try to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do now? I was going to go into the army and use my Russian language degree to keep my ass out of Vietnam. And instead, I'm in New York. So I Wait, decided... Because you were at Yale, you did Russian literature stuff? Russian language and literature. Oh, awesome. And it was because my high school Russian teacher said, that might be a way for you to avoid being in this in the country of Vietnam, in the jungles. That's what he did. During Korea, he used his Russian that he'd studied at Yale and became an interpreter translator. So that was, that was going to be my out. And then I found out that my dad's death had granted me the option of a deferment. It freed me. So the first big mistake I made was to take a job on Madison Avenue. And I struggled. I tried as hard as I could from January until May. 
and that first sunny May day you just didn't last very long, did you? <laughs> five months, man. I think I was with four other rolfers after a, a rolf meeting, a conference up in Colorado, and we were all in New York City at the same time back there in the late '60s. Hilariously, when we added up the number of of actual months, the five of us had spent pursuing what we, you could call a real job. It was less than two years among five <laughs> adults. What were you doing? Madison Avenue, 44th and Madison, right across the street from Brooks Brothers, Dancer Fitzgerald Sample. I was working in the marketing division. It was hideous. It was soul-killing. That ain't Eslin. <laughs> no, no. So I, I damn well ran away. And, and, you know, my steps took me out to California, and that was a revelation in itself. It made being in California made my entire upbringing, school, college life, in retrospect, look like an old Civil War stiff black and white photograph. And here I was in this Technicolor, almost cartoon out in California. Because <laughs> you were a jock, right? I mean, you were like you yeah, I played football and, and lacrosse. Yeah. and I in I did track at uh, at Hotchkiss, but I played football and lacrosse at Yale. And uh, meeting meeting those the hippies down in in uh, New York really freed me from how did a lot. That, I, this is, again, this is a little. It's all yeah. related, right? But how? Because this is actually extremely related, right? So here you are working on Madison Avenue. How'd you stumble into the hippies? A friend turned me on. A, a guy that I was in college with dropped out. Uh, I think between sophomore and junior year, he was a merit scholarship finalist. Brilliant guy played a little bass, went down to the village to try to get in a startup band with a, a kid from Britain who could sing like the Beatles and had a, an English accent, and that was a big draw. Oh, a big draw. And so I went down to visit him, and he introduced me to this whole constellation of odd characters down in the East Village. And it just it completely seduced me. They were living in such a free and easy-flowing manner, and it made, it made a lot of my early life seem really constricted. And yeah. it, it went from there. Uh, you know, I started to get a sense. And I read some Alan Watts, Martin Buber, uh, gosh, just amazing. Tyard de Chardin. I was looking. I was trying to become enlightened by reading a lot of books. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm currently getting into uh, Solzhenitsyn and Dostoevsky. And yeah. The remark you made a while ago is it's pretty, pretty stern stuff. You know, it, it's... It's got an intensity. There's an edge to those Russian writers, and your uh, your Technicolor world is, yeah. a, is a bit different than that. It, just a, a quick aside: my, that all that Russian, all all of those stories, I felt for some years after I got out of college that I was sort of darkened internally. Uh, there's so much that is is somewhat serious, depressing. Um, there's a lot of struggle in in Russian literature. And uh, it, 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 it changed me a bit because I was so immersed in it for all that time. And it took me a while to lighten up, I think. Well, it seems you did. Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> it was, what an odyssey. So I ended up uh, out in California. It sounds like an odyssey. And there my friend Antonia Lamb, who had moved out to L.A., again took me under her wing. But it was a trip, a, a weekend trip up to Big Sur from Los Angeles. It really was a life Do you remember changer. the moment when you were contemplating going to California from New York? 
It was, or yeah, it was uh, in the fall of 1968, and between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I decided I'm, I've, I'm going to leave. You know, it's miserable. It's cold. I've heard about California. I'm just going to take off on a wing and a prayer. So I took my guitar, a backpack, and a bedroll, and I found that I could drive a car for someone who was moving from New York to L.A. and transport the car as my way of getting across the country. And I did that. I literally ran away from my entire life on the East Coast. Wow. And, and you'd it, not worked with people. You'd not done any kind of you know connection in the way that you do now. That was... I was just a free agent. And, you know, this was right after the summer of love when hundreds of thousands of people went to California. So I always felt I got there a little late. (laughs) But I met the most amazing people. It was, uh, you know how serendipity works. I I just ran into one interesting and incredible person after another, and it culminated with a little group of us driving up to uh, Big Sur in my $70 Corvair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you did you did LA you went to LA. I went to LA, uh looked up my friend Antonia, met a guy literally the moment I got there. I I had 2 hours before I had to return the car. Tony wasn't at the address that I had hoped to find her. And a guy walked out of the ne- the house next door with a guitar case and I had mine and he said, "Hey, what kind of guitar have you got?" And I said, "It's a Martin D28." And he said, I've got a Martin. So we looked at each other's guitars and I had a lid in mine. And he said, whoa, hey, you ought to come up and hang out with me and Howard. He had a friend named Howard and they were living in this funky little motel cabin in a whole group of motel cabins. An old guy had bought and put on a piece of property in Topanga Canyon. Great place. So I stayed with Rick and Howard. Uh, We built a, a loft in this and uh, in this little cabin, and I just started meeting California, and it was it was exciting because things were so much more at ease out there. My whole life had been uh, ties and jackets for school; it had been bells and mm-hmm. hours and regimented, and here it, it was the magic land of whatever. <laughs> <laughs> earlier, <laughs> earlier you said. Uh... Uh, order out of chaos right now we've got chaos out of order yeah it was uh, i was i had a little money my dad had died i got a a few thousand dollars from a gi insurance policy that really freed me it gave me a little nest egg and then uh i just rambled around la and First of all, the air is really bad out there, and it's even worse now than it was then. Mm-hmm. But I thought, yeah. boy, I don't think I want to stay here all that long. And it was it was midsummer, and then a guy that I'd only recently met said, "You've never seen Big Sur. We should go up there," and that that was a life changer. An old friend of mine from the East Coast was visiting, and I think we had one or two nice women with us, and we went up there and had an accident. Uh, this old car. Uh, had a brake failure, and I had to slam it into a dirt bank to keep from possibly going down over uh, the edge of the road into a canyon. So there I was with the same baggage I'd gotten to California with. Nobody was hurt. We went up to uh, the little group of buildings that constitutes Big Sur. I had to pay most of the money I had to drag the car up to Carmel to be disposed of. And I never left. 
I got offered a job as a busboy. A friend said, hey, you can stay with us. And that was how my life in California in Big Sur began. Just one nice thing after another happened. And I got a permanent job. Uh, and I started going to Esalen. Because if you're a Big Sur resident and you can prove your residence, and I was a bartender, then you can go down and use the hot springs. And that's when I began to learn about massage, gestalt therapy, sensory awareness. That's Charlotte Selver. I actually lived in Charlotte Selver and Edward Brooks' house for a few months. Uh, she was uh, an, an early, I used to call those, that group of people like Will Schutz, um, Dick Price, Charlotte Brooks, Bernie Gunther, the Esalen heavyweights. Ida Rolf would be there. And these were people who were incredibly innovative and were coming up with entirely new ways of seeing and experiencing human consciousness. Answering the why questions. It was, it was exciting. There was so much. John Lilly was out there. Uh, Alan Watts was out there. I served Alan Watts beer. <laughs> and then he'd drink a bunch and then he'd go down and sit and expound. It was like he could put his, uh, you know, his monkey mind to sleep with a few drinks, and then he'd go and discourse. So fascinating people, fascinating people. What was it about Esalen? Could um, for anybody listening that doesn't know about Esalen, would yeah. you kind of frame that in for a sec? The Esalen Institute. There was an Indian tribe many hundreds of years ago in Big Sur called the Esalen Indians. They were a branch of the Miwok Indians. And uh, when Michael Murphy, the founder, one of the founders of the Esalen Institute, decided on a name, he decided to call it Esalen, E-S-A-L-E-N. It's 40 miles south of Carmel on a beautiful piece of land, which includes uh, acres and acres of garden. There is a hot springs there. It used to, back in the late 1800s, be a spa. It was called Slate Springs. And uh, he, he began by inviting people like Gregory Bateson and Aldous Huxley to come oh, to his... I know his that second one. I don't know the first name, though. Gregory Bateson was married to um, Margaret Mead. Got it. So Huxley is cruising around with... Early consciousness pioneer. Yeah. The Doors of Perception. Absolutely. Alan Watts wrote, uh, the, I think it's called The Joyous Cosmology. That's about his LSD trip. Doors of Perception was about mescaline. Mescaline, yeah. And uh, so there was this enclave of, in, of people who were in the business of studying human consciousness. And it involved body, mind, and spiritual people incredible people. John of God is a frequent visitor there. Chung Liang Al Wong, one of the great Tai Chi masters, teaches there every year. Uh, Dr. Rolf was on on board. She was she would go there in the summers, Rolf people and teach people to Rolf. And so that was the original home of Rolfing on the planet. Other than before that, it was wherever she was. But that gave her a base, and that enabled her to begin uh, training people. And not just uh, Rolfers. She really zeroed in on a small group of people. And I don't know to this day how she chose them, but I've often thought that she received some guidance. And that's with a, a capital G. 
she chose an incredible group of people to bequeath everything she could teach them because she was an old woman at this point. And they've carried on. They've carried on this whole art that we call rolfing. So Esalen is a, a place where you can go to take courses in anything you can imagine. Uh, yoga, human sexuality, different types of uh, therapeutic settings, uh, movement and dance workshops. It's a fascinating location. You've got one of the prettiest locations in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's where she gravitated, and I ended up meeting her there through a friend who was one of her early students who asked me if I'd do a demonstration as an unrolfed man who practiced yoga. So I showed up on a Saturday. There were two guys there who'd had at least 10 sessions, Here's this very impressive woman in a rocking chair with her hair twisted up, white hair, and a red flower in her hair, and a group of eager students. And she w commented on how the Rolfed bodies articulated, that is the depth of flexibility that you could see. And because of that athletic background, I had this really dense, compacted, compressed body. So I was a great before uh, you know, example. And she did me the most incredible favor after this couple of hours and so forth. And we did simple yoga. She said, you've done me a favor. I'd like to return the favor. Would you care to be my model in the upcoming class? And that launched a career. And that is, an, for me, the primest example of, the most prime example of serendipity. I was living in Big Sur for the joy of being in one of the most beautiful places I'd ever seen, and unexpectedly found a career which has sustained me for 45 years. Well, By I, chance. I keep, what keeps going through my mind is what you just said about capital G guidance, that you are... That's that you're getting guided in that moment. I mean, a, a career from this one moment that's profound. So, what, what happened here in these few hours and the subsequent weeks? Well, that was, you know, Jung would call that synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And w one of Dr. Rawls' favorite words, and mine too, is serendipity, finding something astounding you didn't even know you were looking for. So, I experienced being Rolfed. I had a very potent emotional response and I cried for a very long time on the rolfing table releasing a lot of uncried tears that I'd accumulated during most of my life not every every experience but I just couldn't stop crying and as I did I could feel my chest literally open it was as if a lot of my breathing muscles had been had been contracted around holding in a lot of unexpressed feeling and her clever fingers opened up this channel of release. And I just had this potent emotional experience. Not anything I signed up for. Stuart, my friend who introduced me to Dr. Rawls, said, it'll help your flexibility. What happened is I became aware of a whole aspect of myself I had never met before. My feelings. It opened me up to experiencing my feelings in a way I hadn't had any previous experience in because I'd created this facade. This, now I'm a long here, I was a Yale guy, I was a football player, <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm a hippie outlaw living in Big Sur and I've got long hair and a crazy mustache. 
and uh, like a hippie. Yeah, I, I was I was trying to be a well-educated hippie. And what was interesting is this: she, uh, doctor, I, I got the courage up because I was so moved by my experience, by the emotional experience, and the physical experience. It felt as if being Rolfed was removing a a stricture, almost as if I was wearing a, a wetsuit that was too small, and it limited the ease of movement. It inhibited my breathing. It made my legs swing with effort. And from session to session, as Dr. Rolf worked in the fascia and the tendons and lengthened and released my body, I had this whole new experience of being a much more supple human being on a physical plane. And it began to obviously affect my sense of myself on other planes as well, on, on another level entirely. I suddenly had this feeling that I'm feeling feelings that I'm not aware of, of what, you know, it was a whole new experience of perceiving myself on a different level because I'd had this body work. And I started to note, not only am I feeling my own feelings, but this would be two or three months later, I started to think, I think I'm able to perceive more directly what the people around me are feeling. It's as if I had some sort of a barrier, and the barrier might well have been my inability to really be at all at ease with my own feelings. And as the musculature released, as my breathing deepened, and my inner self-awareness was enhanced, it established a different way of connecting to, to the entire world for me. Well, um, I can make some assumptions here, but what do you think contributed to that piling on what throughout your early life fear of being seen it was i had grown up with uh, i lost my dad had a stepfather i know that i my my mother and i tiptoed around a little bit and i got this idea that i needed to be a manly guy i needed to grow up being a brave stalwart male and this was further uh you know exacerbated by the all-male school high school 350 kids going into puberty um it was uh very suppressing and then on to college with no, no real clear idea of who I was or what I was supposed to do. If I met myself while I was still in college today, I wouldn't like me. I was arrogant, conceited, um, totally I'm so glad I met Dr. Rolf because that was a turning point. Reich used the term armoring the body. Wilhelm Reich, student of Freud's. Every time we don't cry, every time we don't speak our anger and we record it, it's another veneer, another layer of unexpressed feeling that we record in our human bodies, in our tissues. And she broached that. I, I say she cracked my armor. And what emerged was uh, I had a different sensibility about myself. I thought, wow, maybe I am a little more sensitive than I was giving myself credit for. And I had great teachers out there. There were a lot of very aware and awake people, particularly at Esalen. And I began to use Esalen as a tool. It was really my graduate school because I never got an advanced degree, had a bachelor's degree. 
But the things I learned in Big Sur have changed and just determined the course of the rest of my life. And being Rolfed was absolutely the, uh, the crown jewel of those experiences. It awakened me to a deeper sense of myself. And it's interesting, there's a phrase, and I don't remember if I've shared it with you, but often Dr. Rolf would comment that someone seemed to have um, a, a younger body than the person actually was in years. And she would say, you know, if someone is constantly uh, lacking self-esteem, lacking confidence, they'll tend to carry themselves in sort of a diffident manner. And because gravity shapes and changes our bodies so potently, people become, and she used this phrase, anchored in an attitude. So if you're constantly physically demonstrating your emotional upset and your lack of confidence, the field of gravity is going to shape you in that, that alignment, and then you'll constantly be expressing that inner conflict and turmoil in the way the world perceives your body. Well, this is backed up by a lot of psychology and all the experiments on the relationship between how even face the, the they did the study I forget the study I you know learned it in my bachelor's where they put a pen or a pencil in somebody's mouth and their teeth and they you know they made that kind of face like they were a bit aggressive yeah and they they tended to judge these uh, neutral characters so they were like Chinese characters or something from um, ideograms and they would tend to judge it more aggressively these neutral stimuli that they would judge it more aggressively when they had the thing in their mouth Mm -hmm. than when they wouldn't. And so what they're saying is that, well, in fact, the way we carry our bodies and the way we carry our faces and influences how we perceive the world and through what lens we're looking at the world. And I think that actually gets to one of the most, one of the at least interesting aspects of this work, which is that we don't tend to see how impactful our bodies, the way we carry our bodies, is to our perception of the reality. We're not introduced to our bodies in this culture. There's no place you go and learn about what it is to be and to have a human body. It's just left out. I think part of it, especially here in Texas, is I don't think anatomy will be taught anytime soon because this is a very religious part of the world, mm-hmm. and and they're still uptight about children learning about genitals. I got to tell you, I was um, I was walking through a school the other day. I went for a tour. It is a um, it's a it's a great school that serves a population in need, and along the walls were full body sketches that included reproductive systems. So they had penises and. Uh, reproductive wow, systems. Wow, that's women. unusual. I was shocked. I stopped because I've been in a lot of schools and I've never seen a dick on the wall when yeah. it's, unless it's graffiti, right? I mean, I stopped, I looked at the counselor and I said, oh my God, are you, this is amazing that you're educating your kids in this way. And it, it baffles me that we we all have a body, and we're so ashamed of our bodies. Shame is a huge ruling uh, aspect of being a, an American. I think that Europeans are a whole lot more at ease with their sexuality, uh, their defecation and urination, right. than we are. Well, this guy, I, I, I have taught, you know, uh, it's a sex edu- education conversation. I've taught yeah. it for years, and 
there's a there's a documentary out I forget the name right now and it's comparing the European and the American approach to sex and sexuality and ours is repress at all costs theirs is not just tendency right we're talking just kind of tendencies right. and this is what the video is stating and the the thing that stuck out to me the most is that when when you compare the age when kids initiate initiate sexual activity they're the same it, it, they're about the same age around 16 and uh when i mean sexual intercourse what's different though is that america and i don't remember the numbers but it's like 10 times as much with regard to you know Scandinavian countries or uh, other countries in Europe uh, of teen pregnancies and STDs, and here in Texas, which what is crazy is that I, I think last year or the year before there was an outbreak of chlamydia in a school in Texas that is abstinence only, and I don't mean to seem brash when I'm saying that it, but it's frustrating to me that what is creating the issue in the first place is the attitude we take to our bodies and especially our sexuality. And I'm, I'm glad we're getting here because yeah. I think that is, that tends to be, at least even in the literature, what we associate with the body, very, very close, right up nuts and next to it is, the, is our sexuality. I think another thing is a lot of people, because there's no education, tend to think of themselves as primarily a human brain. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that, there's that model of brain as computer. So it strikes me that I've worked with ever so many people whose sense of, of their bodies is such that it's almost as if their body is just to keep their brain off the ground. Yeah. There's so little connection there. And I think shame is uh, an exceptionally debilitating problem in this culture. Yeah. People are so uneasy about about their human body, which is such a gift. And Dr. Rolf felt that the human body was very a very sacred thing, and I, that was implicit in the way she trained us. That when we're doing this, consider this a great honor. People are allowing you to touch them, and. In terms of awakening the body, Rolfer's work always with the whole body, not the problem hip or the painful shoulder. When somebody comes to me with a chronic problem, I mentioned that we don't really do acute stuff. That's more for the doctor, the PT, or the mm -hmm. chiropractor. My job is always to work first in the shallow layers of connective tissue and muscle, and then to get deeper into the heavier musculature in a way that lengthens the tissue that has shortened, restores flexibility to material that has stiffened, and awakens a much different personal self-awareness. And there's a nice word, proprioception. Yeah. Proprius is the Latin word for self. So that's a, a self-perception on a much deeper and much more highly awakened level. One of the things that I cherish is seeing people's energy increase in their eyes their sense of presence changes. And that's I consider that predictable. There's almost no way you could go through a systematic series of rolfing sessions because that's how we do it. Not fix the, the symptom. See that most chronic symptoms are, are attached to sometimes quite distant areas uh, in the body. So in bringing the whole body to a higher level, often we're getting to the real root of why someone has back pain, shoulder pain, a lot of neck and shoulder stress. 
our bodies record those things. Rolfing is a very potent tool. Massages too. People often tell me that they've wept in the middle of a massage because that interlude, that hour of being touched, brings people more deeply into their body than anything else would. Maybe even the way many people practice their sexuality, because so many people are just experiencing genital-based sexuality. They're not even contacting any other part of their body. Oh, and I don't even know that... I'm just drawing from my own practice, you know, and, and talking to people about these subjects. I don't, I don't know that most people know that that's possible. The, they, they, they don't recognize the potential beyond the orgasm count or the... Uh, you know the 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 genitalia. I mean, men are horrible at that. You know that men tend to. Sure. I love the Taoist approach that's talking about. You know that men tend to be fire, women tend to be water, and the fire needs to heat the water. And of course, a heterosexual relationship. But I think that's we can broaden it even and say when you are with your partner, if you recognize that you are to heat the water, if with any partner, uh, any kind of relationship to heat the water gently and over time, you begin to get in touch with anxieties, uh, I think, that are, that are related to the vulnerability one feels in the moment with really connecting in that private, um, in that private way. That's an important word because what awakened in me was a sense of vulnerability. Once Dr. Rolf had worked through my whole body, I had lost a lot of that stiffness, that tightness that was such an expression of who I thought I was. And what emerged was more of who I really am because my body was in a different state after being rolfed. And that changed so much. It changed first just how I perceived myself. Then I started noticing people around me. It... Uh, it's an interesting thing because it's a way of trying to educate people into a higher level of spirituality, self-awareness, body awareness, one person at a time. And it's very effective. Uh, it wake, awakens people. How much time do you have? Uh, I've got a client who's going to be here at 10.30. Oh, look at that. We need to finish. Um, well, so what are we? What are, what's what's hanging out in the ether? Because I yeah, gotta break all this what, stuff what down. Yeah, let me see what can we talk about. Um, we're we're zeroing in on the connection between mind and body and spirit, and as I said earlier, Doctor Rolf simply thought that 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 all was encompassed in the human body. She didn't see the body as separate from anything, but rather that the physical human structure housed all those higher levels of who we perceive or conceive a human being may be. And she felt if you, if you improved and refined the entire alignment, you would be generating a new type of human being. So that by these kinds of practices, we are shaping self, right? That we're, we're, exactly. We're, we're, reflexivity it's it's the shifting not only our uh, you know shifting our relationships with only, not only who we are how we feel how we express how we experience reality um, but how we can 
what we can bring into the world of um, of that reality, right? What we can what we can envision and imagine as possible. That that I think is kind of the the gold here is that when you when you begin to shape the self and that's so many definitions of the self, but we'll just right when we begin to shape that we can transform our experience basically. Many people think, for some reason, that our mind is in or is synonymous with our brain. Yeah. And I'm not sure why people think that, but I think it goes back to the idea that we're being, it's so funny, mirroring, uh, uh, that we're, uh, that the computer tends to get people really focused on the human brain. But we are, more than that, we are a soul, a spirit, a body, a mind, and it's all a beautiful blended whole. And you can change any of those. I don't know much about soul changing, but I've known I know how to change my mind. And my body is so much different a vehicle, if I want to call it that, than it was when I had this really dense, slightly battered hockey, football, lacrosse. Um, experienced self into learning yoga learning to release learning to flow more freely and it's very exciting to perceive the uh, the way people change as they get more grounded in their body and that's really I think the goal of what I do every day is to gradually draw people into a much deeper conversation with their physical body and in doing that, we're affecting all the aspects of what a human being is and moving people forward to a, an experience, a more comfortable experience, a more aware experience of themselves. So that's what, how I see rolfing working. It helps this, the troublesome lower back. It can help the shoulder injury, sure. But it's bringing people into a much more intimate contact with their own physical body that is what's exciting. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, yeah. for your time today. It's it, it it's uh, it's great to, it's great to sit with you, man, and talk about these things. I hope we can jump into it again. Oh, I'd love to. I mean, I can think of now about nine different other directions <laughs> we could have gone take, in. Take notes, and we'll do it later. Uh, for sure, yeah, for sure. Because you know, she was out there at such a prolific and fertile time, mm -hmm. and she was rubbing elbows with. Fritz Pearls. I mean, she yeah. raw Fritz Pearls. Those two people in one room together, that must have been amazing. Next time we'll talk about you and Ram Dass uh, yeah. hitchhiking. What, what was that? Yeah, I was trying to get down to down to work from Carmel. And I always, it took a while. I'd walk down to Route 1 just at the southern extreme <laughs> of Carmel. And along comes Ram Dass. <laughs> In a in an Oldsmobile tornado, which was this like a rocket ship car. That's a good place to stop, man. Thank you. I'm yeah, thank for you, your time. John. That was fun. All right.
Started dreaming. 